to Motopop, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 673. I will be your host, Jim McDowell, and with me, as always, for direct from the UK, Rich Joette. Rich, what's going on over in the UK today? Uh, hi there, Jim. Yep, good afternoon. Uh, good to be back to do a little infill show. We're a bit short on MotoGP action for a couple of weeks. I think, is it two weeks' time? Uh, uh, the uh, we're 12 days away from, reconvene. from yep. reconvening in San Marino. So uh, we couldn't we couldn't stay away, so we thought we'd come back with a couple of uh, different things uh, to interest the uh, the lovely listeners and see what feedback we can get. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so definitely, like Rich said, different show. Um, hopefully, you guys are gonna like it—a little fill-in show here in between, because you know we're all gearheads and petrolheads, and we always want to know something about the racing. So we thought we'd go open it up with just a bit of news. Um, one of the things I found out with Coda is that the riders have all demanded that the track be repaved before they come back in April of 2022. Now, that seemed like they were taking a pretty hard stance on it because they wanted the whole track repaved, saying that it all needed to be redone. But within the six-month time frame of them having left Texas and getting the track a contractor, getting everybody geared up, finding the people to actually do it, to put the pavement down they sort of realized or or texas made them realize or someone decided that they needed to intervene somewhere and they kind of relented from the full track repavement idea to hey if you pay from turn two all the way through to turn 10 we'll call that good and we'll be back in april and we'll be able to race so but still somebody somewhere is going to want that whole track repaved and the question is as how is Coda going to pay for it? Because I don't exactly see having a racetrack like that. Uh, you don't, I don't see it as a money maker, especially if the two biggest event. Well, I shouldn't say that, but let's let's face it. I think Formula One's probably the biggest event that they have there at the track, and I'm quite sure that the sanctioning fee to hold a Formula One race is in the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. I mean, I don't think I could write a check for that with because I wouldn't know how many zeros to put behind it, <laughs> but. Um, I think probably the second biggest race that they have there, I would say, is probably going to be the NASCAR road course race that they're going to run because, uh, you know, NASCAR is really big here in the United States. It's basically, uh, to give you a comparison, it's kind of like Aussie V8 supercars or you could think of it as like British touring cars on steroids, uh, except for the fact that we only run around on ovals and occasionally they go find a road course that turns left and right. So um, after that, you know, it's a matter of, finding the time because being located in Texas, there's always a lot going on there between different schools and uh, people are running the track, D different teams will run the track because you can go there in the winter in the U S and be able to run on a track and get some time on a car or whatever. So there's more to this than, than what meets the eye, but you know, I've got my, t I'm getting my tickets ready to go next year in April. So we'll see what happens. I'm, Crossing my fingers that they everything will be okay. They will get the paving done, and we'll enjoy that. But that's all I really found in the news, Rich. Uh, well, something to add to that that I saw in the channels today, uh, bearing in mind, and I'm pretty sure I'm correct in saying this, I think Formula One are at Austin in about two weeks' time. That is correct. But having, no doubt, having seen the goings-on, uh, by which I'm talking about the bumps, bumpy bumps, uh, that the MotoGP boys were contending with, Formula One... Uh, governing body and Dorna seem to have uh, for once in their lives got together and I think Formula One are now insisting on some repaving work being an absolute necessity uh, because although the bumps would cause Formula One suspension to travel in the direction that it's designed to travel in nevertheless 
you know, we know that uh, Formula One cars are pretty, pretty stiff in their in their spring race, and uh, that track will not be kind to Formula One cars in its present conditions. So Formula One and 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 the MotoGP uh, sanctioning bodies and and commercial rights holders and so on appear to be on the same page on this one, demanding some changes. Now, clearly, that can't happen in time for the Formula One race. So we'll, it remains to be seen what the results of Formula One cars hammering around there is going to be, but. Uh, yeah, so so I think there's a lot of pressure on Cota to, to to make those changes coming from multiple sources now. Yeah, Rich, I Formula One car is not a motorcycle, but again, if even if they're onto it that this is a bad deal, then something's going to have to be done sooner rather than later. So I think that all we're going to get is going to be a incremental repave of it. I doubt that we're ever going to see a full-on repave at any one particular time, um, but. Uh, who knows? But I mean, they might find some time to do a whole repave or continue paving uh, before the Formula One goes back, comes back again in November. So I don't know. We'll we'll just keep on top of this. We'll see what happens. So what? One other piece of news, Jim. Just yeah, sure. Uh, just just coming to my mind uh, this morning. Uh, I've I've been out uh, on site doing some stuff with my work today. So I, uh, first thing this morning, I was having a quick read on the uh, on the Dorna website, and they have quite a detailed summary of who's where in terms of Moto Two and Moto Three next ah. year. I just caught a glimpse, and I haven't had a chance uh, time because of work and so on to make any notes on this. But I caught a glimpse that uh, Artigas is being connected with the team and I, I, I apologize I forget which one it was but the what pricked my um, ears and eyes up in particular was uh, a note that it looks as if John McPhee might land in Max Biaggi's Sterile Garda squad. Ooh, there we go. So That's just because we were we were discussing in the last episode who's going to go where um, with a couple of riders looking as if they were going to be a bit adrift uh, and obviously Artigas and, and McPhee were two uh, that we're in the forefront of our thoughts on that one. So it looks as if both of those guys have have places to go. So it's a, it's quite a detailed, uh, quite a long piece on on the Dorna website. But it's worth checking out uh, for those that are interested to see how the how the Moto Two and Moto Three grids are shaping up. But uh, yeah, a great relief from a British perspective to see that. So although John was obviously hoping to go up to Moto Two, that that has yet again fallen through. For him but he is at least going to land in one of the plum spots uh which will be the ride that is being vacated by who's leaving sterile garda uh, jim i'm just having a blank moment the um Fanati and fernandez Fanati. are leaving yeah, yeah. Uh, so it says uh, i found the article here i didn't realize okay. this here so i found it. so it says assumi Ayomi sasaki is going to sterile garda i think we knew that but yeah. his partner is yet to be confirmed although it is rumored that mcphee is in talks with Peter Artel and Max Biaggi for that seat, so yeah. well, it's good. Be good for John. I yeah. I think he deserves a, at least another track at it. There, I was looking to see if they made mention of the of the uh, Moto Three team from China, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't that. see that. I don't see that anywhere in the list. So yeah, more. We'll we'll look at this. We'll know more when we get done with San Marino. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, you had some BSB stuff you wanted to talk about, Rich. Yes, thank you. Um, so I alluded to it in the last episode, but we were so wrapped up and talking so much uh, regarding all the goings on at Austin that we kind of ran ourselves out of time. So um, I just wanted to touch on the fact that, uh, as I've mentioned a few times in, in previous episodes, one of my aims will be to re-engage the show with some BSB uh, activity. Obviously, being in the UK, I'm well-placed to do that. 
I, I, clearly it's not sensible for me to do a, a summary of the season to date, but uh, last round was Donington and the round before that was Alton Park. And Alton was the first round of the love it or hate it showdown format. Now, um, do you remember this showdown thing, Jim? Because it's not something I think that's used widely elsewhere in other bike racing series. Uh, no, it's not used here in bike racing. Um, but essentially, if I've got this correct, you have a certain number of riders make the cut, and then they reset the points based on wins and podium positions. Correct. And then you yep. race again, and they essentially drop people out as you go along race by race. Well, do they yeah, do that or? it tightens up the mathematics at the I top gotcha. of the table, and with a shorter number of races to, to win the championship, it, it you know people will fall away. So yeah, so through the whole of the season, uh, Jason O'Halloran, who's been a, a kind of a, a perennial bad luck guy in the sense that he's always been injured or just just things have not ever gone quite right for him, and this has been the first season where he's ridden effectively all season, as far as I know anyway, uninjured, and certainly started the season uninjured. And all the way up to uh, the showdown, he, he's been the standout rider and had a very significant points lead. And this is where the contentious part of the showdown format really kicks in, because if we didn't have a showdown in BSB, then he would be a nailed on favourite to win the championship. But as it is, as you say, the top six uh, go forward to the showdown format, so only they can win the full BSB championship. And they are all reset, I think, at 500 points. And then they have a certain number of additional points added, which relates to their podium credits for whether they've scored one, twos or threes through the season. So O'Halloran entered the showdown with a, a reasonably healthy lead, uh, given his podium credits that he had accrued through the season. But over the three races at Alton Park, all of which were run in dry conditions, so it was, it was, they were favourable conditions, he had an absolute nightmare. Uh, and, and Tommy Bridewell had a, had a really stonking weekend at, at Alton. So O'Halloran dropped back. Then we got to Donington, which was uh, not the weekend just gone, but the weekend before, which I went to on the Sunday. It was a very tricky weather weekend. And as you know, with Donington Park, Jim, you know, there are parts of that track which are super tricky in the wet when you're barreling down Craner Curves, for example. And and it's 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 it was kind of one of those weekends where it, it was kind of wet and dry quite a lot of the time across the classes. So just a nightmare, a nightmare scenario. They don't really typically run intermediate tyres uh, in BSB. There is a tyre available. And, and funnily enough, earlier in the season at Donington, they had a similar race in wet, dry conditions. And Bridewell did opt for the... Uh, intermediate tie which he'd never run before and he absolutely ran away with the win earlier in the season but because it was more wet than dry uh, a name you'll remember from moto two days a few years back gino Ria. yeah do you remember okay. that name yeah yep. he was always kind of seen as a bit of a wet weather specialist and he did well as far as i'm concerned he did win a, a moto two race in sepang in malaysia uh on a very very sort of typically malaysian kind of monsoonal kind of weather uh race but the race was red flagged and went back a lap. And so he was demoted to second as a result of that, which was a, a bit of a, an injustice in my view. But anyway, he clearly is one of these guys who's particularly good in wet, full wet weather and even in mixed wet, dry conditions as well. So he won the first of the races of the three races at Donington. And then on the Sunday, uh, Taron McKenzie, who's on the McCams Yamaha, he won the first race of the day, but dropped out with an electrical problem in the second race of the day, which Gina Rea won. And the, over the whole weekend, uh, Christian Iden on the Ducati, 
uh, Tommy Bridewell, who's also on the Ducati, and, and O'Halloran, who's, who's McKenzie's teammate in the McCam's Yamaha squad. He was kind of there or thereabouts, but it was all kind of fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth kind of position through all three races. So he had a pretty so-so weekend. But anyway, what, what's happened is that it's built now beautifully to Brands Hatch, which is this weekend. So we've got three races to go. So the I'm just going to quickly run down the championship to demonstrate how close this is, particularly for the top uh, three or four. So you've got McKenzie. He's on at 1,127 points, which is a weird total, but that's a, a function of the way the showdown works. And then in second, you've got O'Halloran, but he's only 10 points back. And then you've got Christian Eden on the Ducati, who's 15 points back. And you've got Bridewell in fourth, who's 21 points back. So all four of those guys, you know, are absolutely in contention. And Brands, as you know, is, is a pretty full-on circuit. So yeah. they're going to be, I, I think, really good races to watch. The other two guys in the in the showdown are Danny Buchan and Peter Hickman of, of TT fame, but they're sufficiently far back. They're 66 and 68 points back from McKenzie, respectively. So I think realistically, they're probably just that bit too far back. And given that there are four people in in the mix, it's, it's unlikely that all four of those will have disastrous weekends to allow those last two guys in the showdown table to, to catch up. Anyway, I'm going to be at Brands all weekend. Uh, I'm going to get down there early on Friday morning. Um, so what I would like to do in one of the upcoming episodes will be to give a bit more of a detailed rundown of how the showdown sure. plays out. Um, so I'll do a little bit of a race report on each of those races. I think there is, for me, I think I think there's a YouTube channel of it. So sure maybe, I can, maybe yeah. I can grab the last races and uh, speed through them and maybe add a yeah. little to the show as opposed to that would just, be great. you going yeah, yeah, through it all. So. Because as, as, as regular listeners will know, BSB used to feature quite heavily when we had, you know, some of the some of the Brits uh, who were who were hosts back back in the day. So it's good to sort of re-engage with the British Championship because, okay, I'm biased, of course, but I do think the British Superbike Championship is probably just about the best domestic Superbike Championship in the world. Mm, I'd agree with you. <laughs> I got it in my backyard, so yeah. <laughs> you know and the, and the closeness of the racing it's it's full on and and um uh, the rights holder in the who, who look after bsb and, and who manage the technical regulations a bit like it's happened in motor gp i suppose over the last sort of 10 years or so they've they've kind of balanced the the technical regs so that there's no one bike it's not like the bad old days where you know ducati would just win everything because they had a you know a, an advantage with the way the, the rules were set Remember Aaron Slight always used to call them the red bikes, didn't he? He would never, he could never bring himself to actually use the brand name. He hated it so much being a Honda rider. But so, so you never know whether it's going to be a Ducati, a, a BMW, a Yamaha, even Honda. You know, despite their troubles in in World Superbike, you know, do pretty well in, in BSB. So there's the racing to look forward to, and I've also I'm not going to sort of um, uh, damn myself by laying out plans which might not eventually come to fruition but i do have a couple of things planned so when i was at donington last weekend uh, i had the the enjoyment to meet up with ex-host and friend of the show dave neal nice who now works for the rich energy omg racing team uh dave's landed himself a really nice position he's he's effectively their press officer so he's you know a go-to guy in terms of access to 
you know, some of the riders and, of course, in that position and given how close he's been in the BSB, because he's managed riders and done a lot of kind of media activity in, in that paddock for quite some years. So he's a, a really good guy in terms of introducing us to some other teams. And I'm particularly keen, given the, the conversations that we've been having over recent episodes with regards to young riders, although that's tended to focus more on, you know, the, the world championship events, like in America, like every country, Spain, Italy, the UK has a, a you know, a, a, an active and burgeoning uh, scene for the very, very young riders. And I've also been able to start to spend a little bit of time with a young lad who's running in. Now, I'm on a bit of a steep learning curve because although I always watch all of the classes across BSB, I don't have a deep, deep knowledge of everything motorcycle racing. And so there's this young lad called uh, Hudson Kai Cooper. Now he runs in the British Mini Bike Championship. I think Hudson's about 10 years old. He runs in the 90cc class. He will run in that class again next year. And then the following season, he, all being well, will go up to the 110cc Mini Bike class. And from there, they can go into something called the Ovali Championship. So they're gradually going up onto bigger bigger bikes bigger tracks and so on but it's interesting in the context of the conversations that we've been having about the age of riders and and how they come through the ranks you know with the pressures not just them the parents you know all the funding of this but hudson is part of michael laverty's ever-increasing spectrum of Hmm. teams right from the when i say low levels i just mean that you know the smallest bikes so hudson rides in the m laverty academy um which uh, is sponsored by Vision Track. So he's in the mini bikes. Uh, Michael then has uh, representation in the British Talent Cup. So that's a little bit like the British version of CEV, if you like, uh, as a comparison. He also has a team running in uh, the Junior European Championship. So I'm guessing that's, I don't know, and I need to find this out, but I'm guessing that's kind of like a bit of a CEV kind of thing. So he's got British riders running on European tracks. And then, as we were talking about, uh, in the last episode, he's now got one of these slots on the full-blown Moto3 grid with, with two British lads coming up. So there's a clear progression right from the earliest stages of racing in the UK for the really, really young ones up through the various stages through the BSB paddock and then into the junior European uh, category. And then, you know, all of these guys will have their eyes set firmly in the future on a Moto3, full Moto3 slot in 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 the in the MotoGP paddock. So, right, because um, Michael has a Moto3 team now. Exactly, yeah. So, so you're telling me that in like, oh, I don't know, six or seven years, we should be looking for Hudson on the on the Moto3 yeah. bike? Exactly. Well, that'd be great if we could follow his progress all the way there. That'd be awesome. Having um, had some contact from Hudson's uh, dad, I thought, what a great opportunity to start to follow both his, his you know, his parents, uh, and Hudson himself on this journey, right from you know the earliest age, uh, although he's been no doubt been racing since you know he's probably since he was five or six, knowing the way these things are these days. But um, but he's in Michael Laverty's uh, setup, so he has talent uh, and is seen as a guy that's going to go up or a young lad that's going to go up through the ranks. So it's a great opportunity to a bit like that um, that that films it for. Uh, uh, boyhood or something like that i can't remember what it's called now where you kind of follow the same character for you know 10 15 years of their life so it'd be great to just to follow hudson uh watch his progress uh, and, and maybe even you know have some access to, to michael laverty himself in terms of his plans and what, what he's doing yeah that'd be great because it'd be neat to hear what he has to say about his academy and yeah. what he wants to achieve and 
things like that. That behind the scenes thing that, uh, you know, a lot of us never get a chance to experience. So yeah, it sounds really cool. So that, so that's kind of where we're at with BSB at the moment. Yes. I'm hoping to be able to, uh, this weekend, um, I've got some contacts into, uh, the, uh, to start off with, but the, uh, the, uh, the stock thousand category. So I've got a friend, um, who's, uh, spanner in, in the, uh, true heroes racing team. So that's the team that takes, uh, uh, military veterans and gives them the opportunity to go and race nice uh so ho- hopefully we'll have a chance to do some stuff with those and, and possibly we'll be able to do something with dave dave neil as well uh, and his setup uh, and that will then le- hopefully lead on to other things next season and next season as i say i will try to do more of a round by round kind of uh, summary to follow it through like we do with moto gp so that's that's kind of where i'm at with the bsb stuff and sorry i didn't get to talk about it at the last episode but uh, as you as you know i do go on a little bit so i didn't want to turn it into a three-hour show yep so for me in the between these um i want to del- i try to delve into that whole psyche of the rider kind of a thing and we'd been talking about that my wife had been on telling us you know that whole argument about too young too too immature, that kind of thing. But we didn't really have anybody who could tell us what was going on in the mind of the rider. So a man named Don Barnes, who is a clinical psychologist, he's based in Perth, Australia, reached out to us at the show and said, hey, I think I could add something to this. And he sent a very nice letter with with a lot of different, very interesting talking points in it. So I was able to get him to an interview. And basically, um, that's what you're going to hear next, is this this conversation that uh, Don and I have about the psyche of motorcyclists and what they have what they're thinking inside we went through a midriff of different questions and whatnot and you know don is a self-proclaimed petrol head so we had to find out how much of a petrol head he was so i apologize for the beginning of it 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 takes us a little bit of time for don and i to kind of find our rhythm and find our uh, what we were going at and whatnot i had him off track because you know i was off script which is what i usually do i throw some question at him that you know my mind just works in different ways so I think we'll listen to that now, Rich, and then uh, we'll get back and have a little talk about that. Sure. All righty. Don's up next. Hey, Motor Potters, it's Jim back with another Jim's Corner interview. This time I have a very special guest, a man who reached out to the show to help us with all the questions we have about the inner psyche of the racer's mind. A guy who is a clinical psychologist and happens to be halfway around the world and through the magic of the internet, I'm pleased to bring on the show Dr. Don Barnes. Dr. Barnes, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks very much, Jim. Always a pleasure. Um, You've elevated my qualifications a tiny because I'm not a doctor. But that's all right. I'd, I'd love to be one. but <laughs> so You play one I, on TV. That's fine. Right. Yes. That's but you are, a, you are a, you, you study the mind, as it were. That's correct. That's okay. my job. Oh, okay. Do that. Yep. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so Rich and I on the show, we've talked many times about the tragedies that we've seen inside of our sport this year. And we went to uh, my wife, who is a doctor, she is a pediatrician, and yep. we talked about the physical development of the riders and all that kind of things. And I thought you had reached out to us. You said, hey, look, I'm a psychologist. I'm a petrol head. And I would, you know, you gave us some insight that you had in your, your, your letter to us, the email to us. And I thought this would be great for everyone to hear. So you kindly agreed to an interview. I really yep. appreciate that you, that you did that, Don. But the first... I really got to ask you the important question. You said you were a petrol head. You're in Australia. You're in Perth, Western Australia. I assume you are a V8 supercar lover. 
<laughs> totally right. And I don't know if you know the history of this. However, you have a blue oval or a red. Blue You're either a Holden fan, a... Yep. Holden fan or a Ford fan. That's it. And I am a blue oval. And blue that's, oval. Okay. That's, part, that's the Ford and it's in your gen genetic makeup as a kid, depending on which of those two options your dad bought, in fact. Basically, wow. the die is cast and talk about nature and nurture in psychology. I didn't have a chance genetically to like Holden's. So I am a Ford man through and through. Uh, and yes, I watched the V8s. We have the fantastic Mount Panorama you probably know Bathurst. about. Yeah, Bathurst, that's correct. Well done, you. And I watched that in particular, the uh, classic um, one there. And they also have an, an endurance race there also. So yes, I follow that. But I also follow too, where anything with motors, even when I'm desperate and it's off season and wheels, I'll watch some offshore boat racing or something like that. So you truly anything with wheels and a motor and I'm there. Hey. So you're truly into this. Motorcycles the yep. whole nine yards. So I'm assuming you've been to the island. Oh gosh, yes. You're kidding mm -hmm. me. I think I don't think you can claim Australian hair. Or we certainly can't certainly can't claim petrol head without a being on the island. And and uh, whether this makes a cut or not. Jim, I'll tell you, I, one of the times I was there was when Troy Corsa was riding for the MotoGP circuit, mm. and I was down at Phillip Island, and if you go to enough motor races, as you will know, the um, in the free practice, it's a lot looser, both for the spectators and for the uh, riders. So I was down the bottom, I don't, forgive me, I don't know the name of the, the corners down there because it's not my state, but... I was down there on a free practice Friday, I think it was, and Corsa was on a duke at that time, and there's a little set of S's, and he came sideways into that like a motor rat, you know, like sideways into the first S. Somehow <laughs> he segued into a wheel stand out of a sideways slide. I'd still, I mean, defying physics, according to me. Stood it up on one wheel, went straight through the gravel to straighten up the corner, and then dropped it down into a slide the other way, and that was just for fun, you know, that wasn't for a lap time. That was just for fun. And you get the sense of just how much fun these guys have compared. I know we're not allowed to talk about F1, but the stoic, unhumorous un, un F1 riders compared to the MotoGP people. I think they wake up every morning. I think, my gosh, I'm living the dream. They do it for free, you know, because they yeah. enjoy it so much. So that's yeah. one of my petrol head stories. Sorry, yep. just I guess to show you that I'm a true oh, petrol head. No, fun. no, that's fine. I got a million of them myself. And one of the things that I've always thought was kind of weird is here in the States, we have NASCAR, which is similar yep. to the Aussie V8s, except for we do it I on an oval. Yep. And I've always, I'm, I've never really been a, I was a fan of it when it was in the 80s and when it was <laughs> more bumping, banging, and kind of, I'll call it redneck racing for yeah. lack of a better description. Yeah. But uh, they, they, these guys would bang in, they got to a point where they would bump into each other and then the other guy would want to get out and cry and whine and he bumped me, yep. he tapped yep. me, he hit me. And at the same time, I'm watching World Superbike at Kalami with uh, Troy Corser <laughs> and uh, uh, the Japanese guy, I cannot think of his name, the Samurai uh, Slot. Nitro Nori? Nitro it? Nori there, Nori Haga. There Thank you. you. And uh, those two guys were locking elbows, banging on each yeah, other, just yeah. rubbing leather 
fairings and you name it, they're going crazy. And at the end of the race, they get on the podium with Edwards and they're all just like fist bumping, high five yes, and having the greatest yes. time. It's, <laughs> there's the, there's a true difference between what they're doing and what these guys on a motorcycle are doing. Like, guys, you have a cage all around you. These guys have no cage and they're thinking it's the greatest thing, the greatest race they've ever been I a part of. <laughs> totally agree. 100%. There is a difference. And yes, some of the world suit has dropped a bit. And I know that your offside is trying to bring it back on your podcast, which is good. But they were, I don't, don't want to be an old man looking through rose-colored glasses, but there were some halcyon days back then in the oh, yeah. world superbike, you know, oh, yeah. foggy and, uh, yeah. The foggy era. Nori, he mm -hmm. was just, uh, yeah. Plop. There was some good stuff there. All right. So, we want to get into the idea of what's going on inside of the rider's brain yep, and sure. the whole idea of what's too young, too old, all that kind of thing. And I thought we'd start with kind of the most relevant thing that happened, which was the race at Coda. And in that yep. Moto3 race, we had a horrifying accident oh. uh, on, the, on oh. that without description. I think we've all seen it. We've all know that basically uh, uh, Anchu takes the front end out from underneath of Jeremy Alcoba. Then that mm. led to, to Mino crashing into Alcoba's bike and going airborne. And Acosta, I think, wound up running into uh, maybe one of the other bikes, and he went airborne as well. Yeah, it was it was terrible. It was one of those things where you, you fear the worst, you pray for the best, and we had the best possible outcome, and that was every rider got up and walked away from it. That what, insane, what, wasn't it? That, oh, yeah. And they it was, walked. It was. It was insane. And given everything that's happened so far this year with the deaths of, of uh, Jason DePasqui, yeah. of Vinales's cousin, and the poor, I can't remember his name, the 13-year-old at Aragon in a CEV class, this, this is, we could have been, if anything dramatic would have happened, we would have been front page news around the world for torture and killing of children. Yeah. So, totally. yeah, so the first question I wanted to ask you was, there was a very distinct difference between the look of how Mino looked after that accident and how Acosta dealt with that accident afterwards. So let's talk about the Mino part first, because that was the first thing we saw on the television. It was, here's Mino, he's sitting in a chair, he wipes his face off, he's very ashen, he's very pale, mm. and he looks at the camera, and he, gives it the, he crosses his hand, waves the camera off, and he wants nothing to do with this. Yep. From... From the internal workings of the mind, where is he? I I, I, get, I told I told everybody on the show uh, in 672 that that Mino had the thousand yard stare, like of a man who'd been in combat. Yeah. What did What did you see, Don? Yeah, I think exactly that, and I think you know that it looks to me a bit like what you might call some kind of stress response. And to his credit, he had the capacity to to uh, understand that himself, which I thought showed some insight. And he appears to me to have <laughs> had a sense of his own mortality there, which isn't big in 18 and 19 year olds. Do you see? And that's, I see where you're going with that. And uh, we haven't practiced this before, dear listener, by the way, this has just been dumped on me, this <laughs> very deep and perceptive question. But that's the point, I think. He, I, in some sense, he seemed to get it. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, okay, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's. A, uh, I'm an engineer by trade, so there okay, are things. Yeah. There's, there's things that I just intuitively get, 
And I can't yep. explain to people why I get that. Like I, yep. I can look at it, I can hear an engine and I can intuitively tell you whether it's running rich or running lean or it's popping yeah, or the timing's out. And so I get that. I understand where that is. So you're saying Minyu had a glimpse into his own mortality and he didn't like what he saw on the, out, on the other side. That's, that's what I think. Yeah. Okay. That's what I think, you know, without, you know, without interviewing him or reading his mind, which sure. unfortunately psychologists can't do despite popular opinion. But that's the thought. He was, you're correct, he was horrified by that and he got it at the time, you know? So, yeah. But you said that he, he it was very perceptive of him to understand that. What did you mean by I that? Think so. Well, I think that because, look, I'm not putting any value judgments here on anything I say, by the way, Jim. I'm trying to speak in facts or, and I'm right. not putting a value judgment, this is right or this is wrong, because in the whole range of human behaviours, it's... um that's there's no rights and wrongs in some senses you know and how you feel or react to something but i'd sort of you know it's other people were more jovial about it and didn't even see it as get, sort of getting out of jail or something maybe not that incident but in incidents in general do you know what i mean and that could actually be a good sign that that this guy kind of gets it or maybe we're both overthinking this and he was just still in shock from it you know it would have been okay. a bad bang i don't know if they they all got up i think it cost her actually looked a little bit sore uh, several minutes later when they you saw him and i bet they both all woke up stiff and i don't know if any of them got bangs on the head it's hard to see uh impact that um large without some kind of you know low level you know the brain as you as your wife explained but the brain slams against the skull and that's what a concussion is and that the g-forces involved even if the head didn't hit first would have done that so maybe there was some element of that too but yeah it was interesting as you say he, yeah okay so well let's kind of con contrast that to acosta who yeah by my recollection essentially bounces back up um yep. he really had if you looked at the back of his leathers, there was no way you could read any of the sponsorship. He had no, taken, I know. yeah. So he had taken a massive impact on his back, or had at least slid on his back for some distance, yeah. shimmied off the guardrail, and yeah. still didn't got up. Admittedly, I would think sore. But what got me was we first see him walking back into the pits. Mm. He sits down in his race chair, and mm. he gets a towel. He wipes his face off from all the sweat and he looks over and smiles at the camera and gives us a little wave. Yeah. 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 Amazing to me that he's one upright, but two that he's as composed as he was for being yeah. 17 years old. Yeah, totally. I mean, that does that is not a normal 17-year-old that we're dealing with, I don't think. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, he so Firstly, but let me repeat, there's no value judgment here about either sure. response is right or wrong. But he isn't a normal seven-year-old in one sense, is he? When you see him interviewed, he's got he's got the interview skills of a seasoned veteran, don't you think? Like he remembers yes. to thank people and yes. self-effacing and all of that. Well, one of the tell Don, can I stop you there? Yeah. Just I don't mean I don't mean to interrupt your train of thought, but no, to, to, to get on to that part one of the I, I fully remember thinking acosta had was with simon crafar they had kind of finished the mm -hmm. interview and acosta looks at simon crafar and says hey i have something can i can i talk again 
And he said, yes, oh, I want to wish someone a happy birthday or, or Mother's Day for his mom, something like that. I, I, it was something that. And then he thanked Simon Kerr for giving him the time, which yeah. told me that in his mind, he has yeah. a lot of ability to analyze the situation and he can compartmentalize. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't talk about Formula One here, but Schumacher was that way. He could compartmentalize yeah. things. He could yeah. be um, at the track. Someone could be interviewing him. They would go to say, hey, the car is ready. We want you to test this. He would go out, do 25, 30 laps. He'd come back, analog, debrief from the car, sit back down with whoever was interviewing him, repeat the question that had been asked, and then answer it. So yeah. I get yeah. the impression that, that Acosta is sort of that way, that he needs – 80% of his brain to do the racing and has 20% left over for whatever may potentially happen. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you, I think we're both agreeing that he is highly unusual in and one of a kind in one way. And I think you see that in his reactions also. And as I say, it just shows you the vast range of, you know, humans vary so hugely. Neither mm -hmm. reactions right or wrong. But this guy, I think, Acosta we're talking about, I think he has a professional face, and I think you could probably stab him in the knee while he was talking to Simon Crafer, and you wouldn't see, you know, because he has You're that right. mode. And, yes. you know, part of that is made, part of that is born, you know, and I think that is, well, <laughs> we don't know where the world championship's going now, of course, until recently, that translated in track behavior as well. You know, I think you see the consummate professional, mm. you know, and maybe right. unconsciously, I'm not saying he's consciously doing it, but I think that glimpse is, you know, what you saw, this guy's professional. And I suspect the later he will debrief in his own mind. I suspect he'll have the tiniest bit of a, of, you know, gosh, how lucky I was to get out of that. But, you know, in the same token, as we might get on to later, I mean, teenage boys in particular, teenagers, they're quite mad in a, in a lovely way, you know, and maybe he, that's, he just goes, you know, that will just go with the flow kind of, if that makes. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let me ask you a follow-up to that. We saw Spanish TV walking down the pit lane. They never yep. entered the garage, but Acosta no. got out of the chair and came to the camera Again, smiling, mm. thumbs up, and yeah. I, I postulated that perhaps maybe his parents or his family was back in Spain watching, so that was an opportunity for yeah. him to show that he was okay. Yeah. I don't. I, I, again, is that doesn't seem normal for someone his age to do to think to think that far ahead. I know, but we've already we've already both talked right. about how he does. So you know that again, you know that could just be part of just him. who he is. You know, mm. or maybe you're absolutely correct. Mum and dad are watching, and hey, I better tell them I'm okay, and this is the best way to do it. Okay. Or he is just simply a media person and, and totally loves. It. I mean, there is that explanation too. Isn't yeah, it? I know. Yeah, yeah, I never did think of that. That yeah, he just no, he loves the camera. Be, yeah, he could just eat the camera up the way some people do. Again, doesn't matter if he does it. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But, you know, sometimes we can overthink people's motivations and so on. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, he's had a, he's got an enormously high profile. Yes. And he has, you know, in one sense, he is thrust into a role. Uh, and he plays that role. And maybe that's what you're seeing there, too. 
you know he, so yeah we don't yeah. want to overthink some of this stuff sometimes i think also. sure like it's, rich it's, rich and i say it all the time hey we're not trying to pick the the pepper out of the fly poop here we're not trying to overanalyze because right. we're not yeah. there but we're postulating what we think's happening and I'm, yeah. I'm going off yeah. the basis of what i did when i club raced and whatnot for a yeah. long time that this is how my mind would be working and i think it's yeah. akin that all racers sort of work in the same vein but not yeah. we're not all like we're all different we all deal with things that are differently that's correct that's Dealing a with human condition jim yep yeah <laughs> So, so I think of Acosta as sort of like Rossi, Rossi esque when Rossi was younger. He's very mm -hmm. much playful. He's play, always got a smile, very playful yeah. to the camera. But boy, there's a serious side, and that yeah. serious side comes out when the visor goes down. It's like he's figured out how to again compartmentalize that. There's a please a sponsor view. There's a yeah. hey, I be friendly to the camera. These are the people that are paying the bill. And there's a very distinct side of him that says, nope, this is now the business yep. and I need to go do the business. So that's, that those things make a true champion, don't they? They are many, <clears throat> there are many sports people. You can think of them in, even in motorcycle racing that, you know, at a amateur or club level, they would be so far above it, but they're sort of off the radar at the fully elite level. And mm, yes. we just forget how, how high a bar a top athlete you know, like Marquez or someone, or and hopefully Acosta, how high a bar they are, and you can be within three seconds of them and be an absolutely freak of a motorcycle racer, but because you're only three seconds, within three seconds, it sort of doesn't count, you know? And wow. I think a, a long people come who they have the whole package, you know, you've got to have that, um, you know, the, mostly they have a... a they are reasonably easy to get on with when they're not racing most champions aren't they too you know i think mm -hmm. if you have if you have people who are a little bit too precious or whatever you want to call it then they don't always aspire to greatness they can but not always and there's a bit in them in the moto gp <laughs> few bike changes that have emphasized that in the last week or two i would say yeah not i agree so, so yeah hmm. So that let's try to contrast how these guys dealt with it. But Rossi was in a very similar incident in Austria a year ago when they had the crash at turn five. Zarco's bike ghosts out and, you know, hits the airbag and flips over him and Vinales. Rossi came back in and he immediately really, in my mind, wanted nothing else to do with that race. Like that race was done for him. Is, is that again that Rossi being at the age that he is, saw his mortality and, and, and did that in any way get into Rossi's head and say, this is why this is, I need to stop this. Mm. I realize it's no. like a two port question and you, you, and you've never interviewed him. I understand that, but I'm, no. I'm just trying to talk about his, his to, to me, that was a defining point of Rossi stopped really wanting to be a racer and just mm. moved the other direction mm. for me. Please. Yeah, Jim, your questions are so challenging. We're talking about the incident where he nearly got his head taken off by a mobile bike. Yeah, yes. That was, uh, my blood ran, I got, yeah, my blood ran cold seeing that one. And I think, and I think a little of column A or part, uh, yes and no for that answer, because I think his performance over, uh, let's say recent years is that. Mm. I think he's, I think he's been aware, of, and I've thought this for a while now, and I, I, I look, I'm one of the Rossi fans, truly. He's one of the 
greatest of all time, no question. Okay. And I feel a little bit sad that for whatever reason, he didn't quit while he was ahead. I have the same opinion. I really and do. I, and I think because you can't tell me he's technically less competent or less able to ride a bike because I just don't accept that even given his age, right? But I think that he's got, uh, he's grown a brain over the length of his career. And that brain, I genuinely think that brain is kicking in and saying, hang on, dude, you know, just leave this, leave this breaker. It might be only a uh, hundred millimeters or something. Leave your brake, you're breaking a hundred mil early or something, but that's the difference. And to be truthful, I think so. I think he checked out in terms of passion for the, the that animal, you know, right. that thousand yard stare that you were talking about, the stare right. of a sniper or something. I, I actually do think he checked out of that a while ago. Okay. And he's such a legend that no one's told him. And also I suspect there are, like all, like, and we'll probably get to talk to about younger riders too, but there are a whole range of pressures on that man that are to a degree beyond his control. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm speculating, and sorry, Mr. Rossi, but that's my thoughts on this. I'm speculating that he, his, he is sort of aware of his own mortality and has been for a, a small number of years now. Then that's taken that 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 final half a percent that's the difference between you know top 10 and not off okay. and i think the i think where he nearly had his head taken off by a mobile motorbike i think that just was sealed the deal a, and another yes i think so and i think so and i'm yeah. not sure objectively if that's the case but wouldn't it be true i hadn't really thought about this i wish you'd sent me some notes so i could have sorry jim geez um i think I think his performance has probably dropped since that time. You know, uh, yeah, his actual finishing. Yeah, I don't know if I it's statistically so, yeah. significant, but I mean, he was mid-pack on occasions, yeah. and I don't think. I mean, you know, on my TV that I watch, the, the the bike lengths. I mean, the bike. What's the word I want? The list of bike stops at about twenty. And there's no ROS more than more often than not. There's no ROS in those top twenty, you know. Right. So yeah. I do wonder, and yeah. I'm also hopeful the guy stays upright and alive and not injured because that would just be the ultimate irony. Yeah. Or the it, ultimate, it, you know. Yeah. And maybe he's thinking that too. Maybe I, I see a lot more posters of him and his girlfriend. I think it is posts. Yes. And he's got a baby on the way. I think maybe those pressures are just saying, and you know, that's enough. Yeah. That's enough. Yep. So it's I, it's I, an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Because Marquez, yeah. Marquez, I believe he's obviously still got that in him. He's a lot, lot younger. And I suspect he's riding. I suspect we don't know half the story of how sore that man is riding. Yeah. I, I, I think. And, I think that he he can't ride like he wants to. No. That, sh that shoulder bugs him. And I think it bugs him because he needs to ride where he pushes the front to the point where it's gone. He feels yeah. it on the elbow. He starts to push with the elbow, gets yeah. the knee yep. under, and then pushes yeah. it all back up. And he can't yep. do that 
that the, either the right. arm or the sh or the arm hurts or the shoulder hurts or the, all the muscles in there aren't where they need to be yet but i in comparison i think rossi may have lost that hunger that drive that yeah. that whatever you have to have to go the 100 mils deeper and yep. and be and realize that the front will fold but that doesn't matter because i'm i've got to go to that limit marquez yeah. still has that drive he still has every bit of the crazy, the psycho, the detach your brain, set it on the shelf when the helmet goes on, and he's going to go to the front kind of a guy yeah, still. That's he's very right. much there. Which, yeah. to me, that's also sort of an analogy. And again, I always use Formula 1 analogies, and I probably shouldn't. But Nico Rosberg yep. beat Lewis Hamilton to a world championship in the same car that Lewis Hamilton drove and then yep. promptly retired from the sport. And yep. he said, I didn't like being the person that Lewis drove me to be behind the wheel. Okay. That, that was, that spoke volumes to me. It totally does, in, yeah. Into, into what he had to do. The yep. person he had to be, the ruthless person he had to be on track to beat Lewis Hamilton. And he couldn't do it again. I didn't know that, but it's telling, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it was completely, to me, all this, it, the psyche in the brain is all very, very compelling so let's look at the let's let's kind of go in a different you know that part was really good we got the relevant issue here but let's go to like the more big overreaching kind of things and, and go to some of the stuff that you had sent me uh, one, one the first one is this cultural social matters and it yeah it goes into what's a child and what and, and what is what is a prevailing view of childhood could you what what does that mean constitutes a child are we talking simply age or is it mental capacity yeah so yeah that's a good point and look it's it might be a little bit off um the topic for some people but i think it's important that we understand that we're not just dealing with a um young person racing or in competitive sport it's it's what basically at what age should we expose kids to that basically and that's my point so it's somewhat philosophical in a way and i'll start off with a couple of sound bites for you oddly if valentino rossi was a boxer he wouldn't be able to compete in the olympics because they have an age they stop boxers after 40 right really? i did not yep. know that so okay. so one of the points because one of the points i'll finally hopefully draw is that this is this is not up to countries it's up to sports governing bodies right yeah so and another area of interest of mine is esports because i think it's relevant to this and we might touch on a bit later but uh the sport i follow has a world championship series and you cannot compete in that under 16 which is quite interesting isn't it so yeah these things the research i've done in in preparing for this chat is that it's there's ain't ever going to be cultural a cultural definition of a child in one sense and it is up to the sports governing bodies to allow that and they have that power to do so because um street skating in the olympics had no age limit and the gold the gold medalist was a 13 year old right he did the he did a 9 920 or 950 Whatever was better than Tony Hawk, because Hawk was riding that. Yeah, street yeah. No, I'm talking yeah. about the the lady, the young girl actually. Oh, the girl. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. She was younger than him. He was a little really? bit older, I think. Ah. But okay. You see, what I guess what I'm trying to say is that 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 to a degree drives 
who is going to be in the sport, or clearly who's in the sport, but also what the sport looks like. So, you know, if you're a 13-year-old street skater, you've got a, a whole complete visual package that's a little bit different to a 34-year-old, basically. Um, and so I guess, sorry, I waffled there a bit, Jim, edit no. that bit out. What I'm really <laughs> trying to say is it's, there is what we, you know, what in Australia defines as a child is a person basically under the age of 18. And once you turn 18, you then are an adult. And that's the legal definition, but there's a sliding scale too. So at 16 years old, you get more rights and anything under 16, uh, no. And, um, but in other countries, of course, in other places, I think it's still legal where a 13 year old can be legally married. So that's my point. In terms of cultural and societal things, the answer about what constitutes a kid or when, whether a child should compete or not is not going to be answered at that level because the differences are too wide. It's going to be answered more at the sports governing body. And um, yeah, that's where it's a, an, an issue because it varies so wildly. As I said, the um, I looked up the, what is it? The Moto3 Junior Championship takes 14 year olds on those 250s. Mm -hmm. And then um, there is an age where you can't run ride MotoGP, isn't there? That's that's a, you have to be eighteen, 18. to ride yeah. MotoGP because everybody yeah. was talking that Acosta would jump from two fifties yeah. Moto three all the way to MotoGP. And it's like uh uh, yeah. he's got to go to the intermediate class because he has he's not old yeah. enough to ride. Which Formula yeah. One has enter, entered that now too. You have to be yeah. eighteen after Verstappen yeah. came in at seventeen, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. so in, in summary of that, what constitutes a child, I guess what I'm saying is it's different in different countries and different um, legal rights and responsibilities one are afforded children. But, um, and, and, you know, a country could example declare that, you know, any Australian under the age of 16 cannot participate in elite competitions and, you know, there'd be some some uh, definitions around that but that would just end the debate right that we're having but it's not like that it's um you have to mean that it's that you know the sporting bodies need to make this judgment and they're not particularly equipped to do so in some ways i mean we've already had there i mean particularly motorcycle racing is a sport where people die i mean i'm very sorry but that's and we've had that this year a couple of times at least and it's just you do wonder basically is what i'm saying yeah, it seems that what what we're, what I don't understand is why the sporting body doesn't want to to set an age limit. I don't mm. think it's without reason. Yep. To to say that you cannot be in the Moto Three World Championship unless you are at a minimum sixteen years old, and, yeah. and, and we're pretty close to that because I do know. The Anchus came in at 15, and there's been the yeah. odd 15-year-old that has been in there, but there was it was an exemption. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they had won two championships in a row, or there's some some trigger that says, okay, you obviously are capable of understanding what's going on, and you can be in the Moto3 class, which yeah. I get. But to me, this is a world-level sport that attracts mega sponsors you look at yep, the bikes yep. there's repsol you have monster energy you have 
a lot of the IT uh, technical stuff on the Ducatis that's there, plus all the other sub-associated sponsors. Why do you want to even risk as the promoter, as Dorna, hey, we have a sport that we show on a global TV that races kids that can be killed? Yep. The, the, to me, it's like the, all the sponsors would say, we don't want our product associated with what you're doing. But it seems like there's no there's no pressure from the sponsors, which I, yeah. I get because it's really, are they sponsoring the kid or are they sponsoring the team? Now, yeah. Red Bulls, I guess, is the different flip. They have a Red Bull rookies and they're, they're actively looking for the next talent, the next kid that's going to be... Yeah. The next Marquez, let's just put it that way. They kind of yep. found him. His name happens to be Pedro Acosta, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, so I never really did did understand that. But I, I think that, you know, you have that. Because if you're 16, you come into the Moto3, you'd be 17 on a Moto2 bike, which yep. is I don't think is too bad. You could spend two years. Yep. That's the other question I have. Would it behoove the sport to say, hey, you can come in to Moto3 as a 16-year-old, but you've got to stay for two years. Then yep. you can look to move on. I don't care if you win a championship in your first year, you stay, you work yep. that out, and you gain more experience. Yep. And then, you you know, same thing kind of applies to Moto2. You can come in as early as a 18-year-old, but you can't leave until you're 19. Mm-hmm. You know, you're spending those two years developing because I think each of those classes – teaches you something inside that you need to know to be good on the big bike. You know, I look at Moto3 as here's a way to learn how to communicate with your crew, to develop the skills necessary to understand your bike setup and what you need to go fast comfortably. And then you move to Moto2, you now want to work on racecraft, electronics a little bit, and tire selection for you and your style. And then you're moving into MotoGP where now you combine all of that together, but you now have been, you have built a four, if you followed my idea, you'd have a four year plan and have a basis to understand all of what's happening to you. Does that even make sense from a standpoint of growth? You should be the director sportif of the FIM or the relevant governing body. You covered a whole you covered a whole broad range of things there. So I'll just jump back quickly to the philosophical part because that's that's where you're about, sure. you know, what constitutes a child and, and when can we use them if that if that's not too harsh a term. And the point I guess is for all sports, they have a um, they are they can be big businesses, but even at the amateur level, they are a business in a sense that they their success is measured by participation. And if you don't have some kind of um, development process, then the, the motorcycle racers will go and do a netball or you know what I mean, or some other sport that has a that has a development class. So mm-hmm. I looked up the the skating. The Olympics wants to be a younger, funkier, more relevant um, association of sports. So you've got um, what is it? Break dancing in Paris and the skating, as I believe it, the street skating, which I was fascinated by, had no age limit, and that suited the Olympic Committee and it suited skating to bring younger people, make it more relevant, and so on. So make no mistake, there are vast 
absolutely vast uh, forces at play here, I guess is what I'm saying. And um, one way, and it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense to have a development class and a, and a process where you can transition through increasing levels of the sport. The, the, one of the differences for motorcycle racing is that it is a far, far more risky thing than most other sports, I would argue. I can't think of other kids' sports that are quite that. Even junior car racing, as you said in your intro, they have a car, they have a cage around them. Uh, but look at the joy, I have to say this myself, look at the joy that a, that a freaking amazing athlete brings to the class. And when he brings, he's, I'm talking about across an hour, he's got braces and he looks all of his 16 when he, you right. know. And I'm sure all the girls racing. think he's a hot, he's a heartthrob, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, all and the Spanish girls have got to want to go to prom or whatever with him, right? right? Exactly. So eyeballs. The, and eyeballs. That, that makes, a, yes, prom? No, that makes a whole, um, <laughs> that makes a whole, and you see, that forgives them everything, basically. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Right. Ultimately, it's worth it. And that's a human condition. In a sense, you can't blame them. But also, no. in a sense, if everyone had an agreement that, because, yeah, I will show my colours here. I think children are overexposed. You know, I don't necessarily mean they should be protected, but I think the rigours of elite performance on children, gymnastics is another one that swings to mind, is I think it's unfair and not good for their development and what we really want which won't happen of course is everyone to agree look let's just protect our kids and have them in um you know enjoying and participating but at the elite level we have strict age and or performance criteria you know if everyone did that then they wouldn't be watching each other's shoulders because they're going to be poached from motorbike racing to go car racing or vice versa right so I had a thought there, but I guess I kind of lost it to some extent. But I know that like the, the like the Olympics, there's a lot of stories about these uh, elite level kid athletes and what they sacrificed as a kid. Mm -hmm. They're they're yeah. not really allowed to be a child. They they don't have. I, I I go back to my past. Okay, it's not elite level racing, but I was racing club. I was racing every weekend. We were gone all the time. I really didn't have a lot of friends no, because no. there wasn't any, I mean, there were, my friends happened to be at the track cause they were doing the same thing I was yeah. doing. But even at that, it was a cool relationship because I need to beat that person. I yeah. don't really want to know him. Yeah. I know him as my enemy. So my psyche is I need to just beat that person because he is what is standing in the way of my chance to be noticed yeah. by in the America by John Ulrich to put be put on his team to on his super sport <laughs> team or something like that to be able to yeah. be seen by a factory to get there. Uh, and yep. it, I, I also think that there's a huge amount of pressure on the children from the parents, which yep. I is completely wrong. Um, yep. There's several instances of uh, guys here who race motocross, prof professional motocross, that their family uh, has three mortgages on the home. They're yep. expecting them as a 12-year-old to go to the big race, Loretta Lynn's, win that and be a 
uh, a Kawasaki support rider, which will then get him onto Mitch Payton's team, and he's going to be this successful Supercross star for multiple millions of dollars, and the parents are already there ready to take that money back because we gave everything. I mean, it was a big yeah. difference in my mental state when I became when I, when I got married was a big change in my life yep. um, because I realized at that point I wasn't responsible for myself. Yeah, I was responsible yeah. for my wife. And then when we had children, now I'm responsible for m myself, yeah. my wife, and my two children. So yeah. it definitely makes it different. And I, I think it's unfair that people look at that as a, as a pure business without mm. any thought given to the well-being and psyche of these children yeah and look that's a good point and your personal insight is interesting too and uh, echoes what you hear so much of there's a lot in particular i'm going to pick on the olympics here because there's a Go lot of um work done in that regard and um a couple of current you know a current thinking or current reports on that in fact your own do you have show notes? We could put this in the show notes. So yeah. I do listen to your show, but I don't put it in the show notes. I don't <laughs> read the show notes. Whoops. A current one from the National Think Tank for Child USA Protection. And a couple of things here that, um, you know, quite unpleasant things like they, uh, they athletes, you know, high percentages of athletes receive some kind of physical abuse, not necessarily... Um, uh, I can't think of the word. Physical abuse, not not the sort we're thinking of, but you know, physical exercises used as punishment for failure and things like that. You know, there's any number of things like that. Seventy percent of of young gymnasts seem to think that don't really realize they have rights under the age of seventeen. Yeah, yeah. So there's a big controversy with that in the U.S. with totally. one, of the, one of the trainers or the coaches or something. Yes, yes. Um, it's, it's a huge, yeah. huge, huge scandal that's there. In for, um, I, I don't know how to say this correctly, but I'm going to use the term for developed nations to yep. to, to to let that happen yep. in some way to your children yep. seems so wrong on so many levels to me. Yeah, I, but, I agree, and it's to do with the the cohort is disempowered. They're young and they don't realize they have rights and so they yeah. can be more easily preyed on. Uh, a nice term that's in getting current use to help you out, Jim, is a high income country because it's okay. less patronizing, less patronizing than developed and undeveloped, basically. So no, didn't mis no disrespect for any of the countries that are yeah, that are correct. not high so income. So high income. So, and yeah. you're getting to the point of child empowerment or child agency, neither of which are very useful words, but I can't think of what they are useful. I can't think of better ones. And you've touched exactly on that. A 13 to 15-year-old developing early success at an elite level sort of pushes uh, a rock down a hill that gathers momentum that they have very, very little say over laterally. Their essence, in essence, their success traps them into a cycle of trying harder to be more successful. And your motocross one was a perfect example of that. And again, you don't have to be an evil parent or an evil sponsor, or you don't have to be evil for this to be. It just sort of evolves. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and I don't know, I don't know Pedro Acosta's um, situation, of course. But let us just say, what chances he got a 
going up to his mum or his manager and saying, you know what, I really want to be a physiotherapist. And I'm not taking the mickey. I'm just saying, what chance has he got? You think of yeah. that. You know? that's, and, that's an amazing question, to be honest. Yeah. And mm. I've never, even, I've never thought of it that way mm. and well, you, you, I mean, you think of that now you goes, say it you say it it's like wow because you know if you if you let's let's make a hypothetical out of this because i think this is fascinating if it's hypothetical let's say that mr and mrs yeah, augusta it's, yes, we're, it's all hypothetical. let's suppose your boy doesn't want to race anymore after yep. what happened yep is there any kind does is there an out clause of there anywhere is there any way he's going to be out given the money that obviously red bull has spent on this yeah on this person it it's too much of business because they want to return on whatever that investment has been yeah. and from what I mean, i've read his parents are very humble his dad was a fisherman i believe yep. so they're they're obviously the good salt which leads me to another thing in, in um what what amazes me is I I know I knew Nikki Hayden when Nikki Hayden yep. was five. I spent okay. my time. I grew up on the dirt oh. tracks with Nikki Hayden. I went road racing with Nikki Hayden. I raced against Tommy, his brother. Um, okay. His is Roger Lee. I have known Earl. I, I I've known them in all my life, wow. all my racing life. And the amazing thing to me is that. And I'll use Nikki in this example, although all three of the boys were this way. Yep. How good of a person Nikki was, how good of a person Tommy was, how great a person that they were. Despite he was everything. legendary for that, apparently, Nikki Hayden yeah. wasn't. Like, yeah. And I, because I'm, I'm trying to put this together with you because he was, he was, Nikki was sort of the prodigy of the family. Yep. Um, I, I no disrespect to Tommy, no disrespect to, to uh, Roger Lee. Nikki was the best of them all. He he yeah. was far and away. He was driven to go faster. There, there's a great story. I'll tell a Nikki Hayden story. I'm not if you've heard this one. I apologize, everybody. They had their own track that they would race on on Earl's Lane, and so Tommy Lee, Tommy and Roger Lee are out riding, and they're timing each other, and Tommy breaks Nikki's track record. So they they decide that they want to screw with Nikki, who happens to be at his prom. Hey, buddy, Tommy just beat your lap record. Twenty minutes later, Nikki is in his gear on the track trying to break that get that record back from Tommy. Yeah. So <laughs> you you understand where he is in that regard, which I find that yep. to be so interesting. But it goes to the fact that despite everything that Nikki went through. He seems so well adjusted to it all, mm -hmm. and I'm and and so that gives me. Is there a case of nature versus nurture? Is it different if your parents are actively with you and are there all the time? Which is way that's how Earl and Rose were. They were they were so involved in it. Now I'm not saying that everybody else's parents are not involved in what their child is doing, but I do get the impression that the that they are in the background. But Mark Marquez's dad is at the races all the time. We yep. see him there, but he rarely has kit gear on. He's yep. got uh, street clothes, for lack of a better term, and yep. he's just cheering on his kid. Kids, <laughs> sorry, don't want to yep. forget kids. Alex in this. Right. Kids, right? Right. So it's <clears throat> it's amazing to me that they that even you know, 
that they're adjusted well. So is there is there a nature nurture thing there? I All right, Jim. <clears throat> I'll try and be gentle on you, Jim, but you're you're conflating someone's capacity to be a nice person with their stress and things that they are under in a sense they're two different things right you Mm. can i mean there are all manner of horror stories of people's upbringings you know that they rise above that and become you know Mm. world leaders or whatever and nikki's let's say nikki's legendary for being a nice guy so he is anyway but i could argue he's a nice guy in spite not you know Uh I, yeah. Because you can't, you know, and you think of you think about this. For him, I mean, clearly from what you're saying, he's driven, right? Mm-hmm. So you could argue that maybe some of a lot of his um a lot of his forces were internally driven. But also look at his circumstance and look at his upbringing. He's one of three, and he would be they'd be naturally competitive. You know what I mean? And very so, good point. I just I never connected to, that. Yeah. If you want to argue, I mean, he could be as much a victim of that. The lovely people. That's not my point. It's not the lovely people. It's the environment you find find yourself in, and the and the powers that you have over your own destiny. And your point was telling the two other boys, and again, no disrespect to anyone, the two other boys have wound him up. And he's mm-hmm. been wound up. Do you see? Yeah. So see, that's and, what I needed you for, Dot. Is you you set yeah. me straight. You you make yeah, sorry things. Sorry about that, but that no, is true. No, 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 no. You you make me yeah. see things from another side because yeah. I'm not elite level writing, but I sort of was in that bubble. There, there's a bubble yeah. around racing, right? Yeah. I think it's that yeah, way, whether it's cars or yeah. bikes or whatever. If, you, if yeah. you exist in the bubble, it's very yeah. hard to see something from outside of the exactly. bubble. Exactly. And, and, your, and that insight is amazing to me because now it makes me realize that despite what I may think about myself, I'm probably still inside that bubble. <laughs> You, which is I'm which sorry, is but you're you you've your look in the mirror is correct because you are. And you've you're better than my better at most in understanding the insights there. And even as a person, you weren't at the elite elite level, I'm guessing. No, not no. <laughs> but you think about how much of those decisions, how much of that racing agenda was yours in the same way you might go to a, a fast food restaurant and choose a menu item do you see my point i would argue you go to a restaurant you've got one unless you're on a diet or you've got an eating um restriction you have got 100 agency to choose from a restaurant menu right you are in full control there right even as an amateur i'm sure you're a gifted amateur jim i'm sorry i don't know your history in that regard but i got even, one national championship so i oh, did well, do okay i did i did okay i have one national championship so you think of your agency or your empowerment or control over your destiny in a restaurant versus you doing at an amateur level what you loved and they're worlds apart aren't they yeah they're not even close and to you each look other. at acosta and uh, you look at rossi and Acosta at either end of the spectrum it's that on steroids multiplied by several hundred percent. Wow, that is like mind blowing to me right now. 
I mean, it just is. It is. There's so there's so much now that I want to question about myself. I feel like I should be on a couch mm. with you and you and telling you that I don't like my mom or something. <laughs> the classic Freudian classic Freudian stuff here. So yeah, well, that's yep. it's it's that's it's that's fascinating. So let, I mean, I, I don't want to take up all of your time, but I do want to get to 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 one more. Um, yep. facet here that I, that, and this was a, again, another part in here that you said that I thought was amazing professional gamers in what yep. they do at their age. And yeah. the, the, you, you, you state that like, Hey, look, these guys, kids that are really good at esports are 13, 14 years old. Yep. And what are you doing in a video game? It's reflexes, split second decisions. Yep. It's yep. everything that you would do in a car, racing a car, racing a motorcycle. Exactly. It's exactly the same thing, which is probably yeah. why the, the kids like George Russell, Lando Norris are all yeah. doing so good. Or in fact, men, Max Verstappen, exactly. they all do so good because they have been training their brain for a lot longer than what we ever realized that they were because the older generation looked and said, why are you playing that silly, stupid game yeah, over yep, there? Exactly. Yep. Wow. So, so explain yeah, that to me more, because to yeah, me, sure. that's so another what, one of those. Yeah. What we're talking about here is within child factors, you know, the mechanics, the, the physical attributes of the kid, uh, which, which is the one that most, when they look at the children in sports, most people cover that one, right? And mm. that's what you did well with your wife. And, but I guess I'm going to have to, depart the tiniest bit from that because like nothing is ever totally as it seems and mm. i gently wanted to point out that let's leave the physical side is much more um much more apparent because you know wrestling you, you have to have a certain body weight to to play certain sports appropriately and that's a whole new issue about that same with motorcycling i think but we, so we well understand the physical attributes and the kid might not be ready to play contact sport or might not be ready to wrestle a 1,000cc monster around the track. But I argued, and I argued that actually the cognitive abilities of the child are probably certainly well-developed enough. This is the cognitive abilities, not their mindset or whether they want to do this or feel empowered but their actual ability and here i guess i'm going to just drop in a little bit of jargon and talk about executive functioning of the brain which is the one that that mainly does the um that that i think affects the most here they things like um working memory mental flexibility and self-control are the key elements of um, executive functioning. We, we call them the higher order and self-regulation things. And um, they can be a little bit, you think of, I, I use the, the, the idea of a gamer because they're sitting in a chair and they're safe, right? In one yeah. sense, they might get RSI later on, but they are not gonna be run over. What's, what's RSI for at, those of us who don't know, Don? What's RSI? Um, you used the oh, term sorry. RSI. So oh, I just bad. want everybody to know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. It's a repetitive strain injury that comes okay. from, you know, like, and and uh, top level esport gamers are still have to ice their hands and things like that because of the number of mouse clicks they do. Okay, okay, gotcha. But you look at it, you look at a retail, I'm going to name names, StarCraft 2 is a real-time strategy game that involves battles. So in one sense, you could see it 
see it as an aggressive sort of game. And in there, you've got to have reaction times. You've got to make complex internal judgment and decision-making on the fly to do it well, right? Yes. And because it's not just about how many mouse clicks, that's a physical component. It is where you click your mouse and how many of these units you build and whether you engage with the enemy. And when you see the enemy doing something, you need to react to that, basically. So exactly the same sort of thing. Let's take the word enemy out. But what motorcycle racers need to do. So I guess my what I'm trying to argue here is that in terms of their actual cognitive abilities, kids are freaking awesome at this stuff. And you can mm. see that by the results that they are getting. So I guess what I'm saying is when you don't, don't let's, don't necessarily say that their brains aren't developed enough to do it either, because I just want to throw a span in weeks to say, you know, esports tells us that they probably are. Hmm. Fascinating. So yeah. let's uh, let's end on one well, last question because we're yep. roughly at about an hour. So I like we'd like to sure. keep the pod pod at about an hour. So yep. my last question is with this is, could you design? I'm going to use the term a psychiatric evaluation. I'm not sure if that's really what I want here in this. So let let the question play here for a second. Could you develop a test uh, that you could give to say a 14, 15 year old to see if they were ready to handle the mental stress strain that they were going to see racing a motorcycle? Yep. Okay. I I will answer that. But my first answer Part A is that's probably the wrong question. Okay. The question is, do you do you want to subject the fourteen year old to the rigors of elite of elite uh, sport? Okay. Right? okay. Sorry. But no, no, no. That's that, great because and, it it it's, it sees it from that again. I'm still yeah, in the bubble. Uh, I haven't gotten outside of it yet. <laughs> so you have to pull. I apologize. I'm out outside the bubble. I'm, I'd be asking, why would you want to test to see if someone can? Because I, I guess I I was thinking of it like there's obviously now. Because there's been such a big deal about concussions, there's obviously a concussion protocol that's in MotoGP now. Yep, that's right. So yep. if you can develop a protocol that says, look, your brain smacked its skull and you yep. now have some identifiable problem that you yep. – that, 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 that from a medical standpoint, you should not be getting back on that motorcycle. Is yep. there a test that says you should not be getting on that motorcycle because you don't have enough on reflex or – yeah, motor nerve, something. Not, That's where I'm going at it from. Yeah, no, not a psychological one. And um, there, look, there are a range of test instruments around personality instruments and things like that. That or personality tests, should I say, that have you know a broad uh, correlation with some life outcomes. But there's not really. Oh, I I am of my professional uh, philosophy or belief is that there's not really something like that. As yet, that's not sufficiently uh, developed, at least. You look at, um, for example, the physical response. I mean, they do have G-Shock measurements now, don't they? And I yeah. think there are, there's a helmet technology that will actually measure. And that's mm-hmm. some kind of objective measurement of the physical trauma the brain might or might not have been exposed to. But all the other assessments, psychiatric and psychological assessments, rely on um sort of indicators you know that are self-reported mm. i mean if, if someone assesses you for depression they will ask you a range of highly 
highly targeted questions you know about Ooh, how okay. you feel okay. in the morning or whatever but okay. it's it, how do you feel jim not and it's not based on behavioral or you know of other externally validated mm. sort of stuff it's like um, when people do a survey there's yep, a poignant exactly. result that they're looking for and if you yep. actually study the questions you'll see the same question asked to you yep. three or four different times but in a different way because they're expecting yeah. you to see the same question they're expecting that you would give them the same answer me i see That's that right. i recognize it and i screw with them and i pick a different answer on each one of them uh, because i think yeah, it's fun yeah. a psychologist nightmare you they, they called lie detector questions right up and or, or at least ah, tech, okay. test tests of validity and reliability in fact and if you pick them then that all goes out the window just saying uh, particularly if you're going to well. mess up the foresight's brain but yeah. yeah i guess i guess there isn't uh, but the bigger question for me is you know what what is acceptable for a young person to be faced with and yeah. what isn't uh, can I leave you with this thought then if you're going to sure. cut me off? No, so, I'm not going to do it. Don, Don, please don't, don't, don't take it as me cutting you off. I think this is, this, I think that this has been fascinating. I just, yeah. uh, there's so much more, but I think what I'd love to do is I'd love to get into the off season and get back to you yeah, because yeah. there, there is a, there's a whole nother level of questioning that yep. Rich and I have that we would love to get your intake on. Um, so let, let's get your that. last thought here and okay, then we'll, so, we'll go on. So here's a soundbite uh, that I can't attribute. I found it somewhere else. It's not mine. Young athletes are often seen as elite athletes first and children second. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. They're seen as elite. And here's what I did some research for this because I do care, Jim. So we look, John McPhee, that affable Scott. He seems to be the oldest person in Moto3, right, at yeah. 27, yeah. right? Yes. Now, John and uh, Pedro Acosta, we could talk about them in the same sentence, in a sense. Do you know what I'm saying? Like we talked, you know, John's races, Pedro races, we could talk about their entry into, you know, the parabolica or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. yet, oh, yet think on this. Pedro just turned 17, and John McPhee is 27. They are developmentally, culturally at completely different stages in their life, right? They yes. can't even hang out as friends together. That would be a bit weird. Do you know what I'm saying? And <laughs> That would and, be socially uh, weird. Yes, it would. Yeah. Yeah. And Pedro can't go down the pub for, certainly not in Australia, don't know, in Spain, but he can't go down the pub for a beer with John. And we wouldn't expect that, right? So no. we have a seasoned and adult, John McPhee. He's pretty low profile in his media, so I don't know if he's got a kid or partner or whatever. But you know yourself, at a 27, if you, if you're, if you had a 16-year-old son and it was hanging around with a 27, 28-year-old, you wouldn't be that chuffed, I'm suspecting, right? No. Mm -mm. So do you see my point? Yeah. We see Pedro as a John McPhee, so he's an elite athlete first. Wow. You see? And that's that, that is... that's in a nub. That in a nub is the is the whole issue. We probably just just chuck that in your soundbite. <laughs> because the whole stuff that we've chatted about the whole way through basically gets down to that, doesn't it? Covers everything, you know. What do we see in an athlete? What do we want? You know, how do we view them? Right. I think that's a good place to end it there, Don. Yep. Appreciate so your time. Cool. So um That'll be all good. Thanks, Don. You're very welcome.
right. A good big thank you to Don Barnes for the interview. Um, it was a good talk. I enjoyed myself immensely during it. Rich, what did you think? Well, Don is a man who knows his stuff quite clearly. It's, you know, great to have that melding of a, a person who loves their racing and but really likes to try and get into the heads of what's going on with these people. And I suppose one of the big takeaways for me. Uh, some of it was a little bit over my head I suppose in terms of because I'm not a clinical psychologist Um, but is this idea at least I think I'm reading this correctly that what he's saying that it's almost an unconscious reaction in terms of quite often how these people behave yeah that's I got that too you you were kind of saying about the the situation with uh, Nicky Hayden and, and you know having a time of his beaten by brother you know it probably wasn't even a conscious decision for him to go out and just beat it he, he had to do it mm-hmm. you know the guy probably wouldn't have slept at night if, if he hadn't been able to do it and it's that kind of animal i think the term animal brain came up didn't it is this, this yeah. kind of primeval kind of response that you have in certain situations and some people have it more acutely than other people and i guess in races that is part of that makeup which is you know, the, again, we mentioned it in the last episode, the old Troy Bellis thing. If you get overtaken, you overtake him straight back. You, you know, it, it's alpha male and increasingly alpha female uh, with, with ladies racing nowadays as well, which is great. It's the, but it's that alpha response, that, that need to, to react immediately so that you, you are number one. It's kind of a survival of the fit. It, you know, there's so many ways you could catch it, I suppose. But that for me was an interesting insight really into what Don was saying about the way these people think. And in many cases, they don't think it's just how they naturally react. Yeah, yeah. Th- that one got me because was. I wish I would have had been able to think fast enough to get Don's reaction to this. But Don said he'd be more than willing to come back onto the show. But there was... In America, there's what's called the Grand Slam of racing, where you win a dirt track, short track, a dirt track TT, a dirt track half mile, a dirt track mile, and you win a road race. Well, Nikki had accomplished them all except for winning a mile race on dirt. And he had a really great opportunity to win in, at, the, at the mile in San Jose. And he was leading... And at the very end, he got drafted by Scott Parker, who was the national champion, had been national champ for several years. Missed it by the classic half of a wheel, right? And Nikki always said, I never think about the races that I've lost, but that one sticks in my crawl, which shows you how much he really wanted that Grand Slam and kind of gives you more of an insight into his mind of what he was thinking. Mm. One of the big things that I took out of it was the fact that, as Don says, these people who are doing the AI racing, you know, um, the those people that are doing that, that esports they, and stuff. Esp- oh, yes, esports. Thank you. I was looking for the term and couldn't come up with it. Was these people are world champions or are at the top of their game and they're 13, 14, 15 years old? And Don makes this direct correlation that you're being asked in this particular type, whether it's a racing game or a, a battle combat, um, what do they call it? Uh, first person shooter. So FP FPS or something like that is the acronym. I'm not a gamer, so I can't tell you what these all are, but you're asking that person in that situation to make a judgment, quick judgments to look at a strategy and to have amazing reflexes. Wow. That sounds like what you're doing on a motorcycle. (laughs) Oh, you're in a video game. Now, there is the comfort and aid of knowing that I am sitting in a chair, watching a computer screen, 
And if I make a wrong decision, it will not hurt me. Now, but still, there's a lot of parallels that run across that. And I'm, I really was taken aback by that one because it really did kind of wake me up to like, well, maybe 13, 14 isn't too young to be on a motorcycle, but because you may have that skill set, you have that ability to think quickly, make a decision, react to it. But the one thing that is not there is we talked about was that like survival instinct and you, you, and I know it from just being a club racing. I would do the older I got, the slower I got, because I just didn't want to, I didn't want to hurt. I guess you come in, you become into self-preservation mode at some point where your mind just doesn't let you do that anymore uh, and go as fast as you want or break as deep as you want to, because yeah, if I fall off of this, it's going to hurt. And you, don't, and you don't heal as quick, I guess, as well. And that's one of the amazing things about Rossi, given the fact he's 42 and still doing this. I mean, I'm not trying to beat the crap out of Rossi, but still, to have gone that long on a motorcycle. You know, a lot of guys drive cars. They'll, they'll let's say they, they drove carts and maybe they went to uh, an F3 championship somewhere, then a, a GP2 championship. They may have raced Formula 1, so they've reached essentially the pinnacle. A lot of them go to a sports car and they'll race until they're 40, 45 years old without, you know, you'll see guys that are 40 years old plus racing at Le Mans in sports cars. And so it's not impossible. It's just really odd to do it as I do it on a motorcycle. So mm. I, I really thought that what Don said and where we were, and what we talked about was very interesting. I hope all of you find it very interesting. And uh, I think I'm going to think you and I have to sit down and come up with some more questions for Don and, really kind of come back at this again, I think, because there's, there was a lot there and I didn't want to take too much of Don's time and whatnot. Cause it was an early, it was early Sunday morning for him and late Saturday afternoon for me. So we had to wrap ourselves around that time zone change and whatnot. So if you do get to talk to him again, Jim, I think you need to get, set yourself up with a Shea lounge or something in the background so that you can be fully reclined on the doctor's <laughs> chair, you know, cause you were taking a few lessons on board there. I noticed as well in terms of your race background. That was another thing is like, I real, we, we talked about like, there's like a bubble around these racers. And I, I suddenly realized that, wait a minute, I'm, I'm still in that bubble, whether I really want to admit it or not, I may not physically be there, but mentally I'm there, you know? So it was like, well, that's really wild. We won't get into it now, but, uh, and I'm not even sure it would necessarily be fall within the purview of clinical psychology, although Don would be the person to, to, tell us about this but i'm also very interested in and it doesn't just relate to motorcycle races although they are certainly one very extreme form of this but is this whole thing around elite uh, sports people and and how they manage stress how they manage pressure and how they manage pain when they get injured and obviously with motorcycle races they frequently get injured and you commonly hear pundits and commentators saying things like, oh, they've got a broken arm. Most normal people would be laid up in bed for three months. You know, they're pinned and plated and three days later they're in practice one, you know. And mm -hmm. is there something in the physical, mental makeup of certain individuals that sort of pre kind of define them as people that are going to do well in certain types of sporting We'll say sporting. It could could apply could to anything. anything. Yeah. Well, it could be anything, but uh, but certainly with sport, where you're pushing yourself physically and mentally to the absolute extremes of performance, are there certain 
traits in people that lend themselves to certain types of activities so i think that's another not for now that's another whole interesting area that we could get into both with your wife who would be very knowledgeable on this subject jim Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure Don would have something to say on this in terms of the way that the mind processes information and manages certain responses. And we know that the brain has certain areas, front, back, left and right, that do certain things. Maybe most cycle raisers have certain areas that are closed off or hypersensitive to things which make them different to the rest of us. Because I couldn't race a bike with a broken wrist. I mean, no way. Yeah, I wouldn't want to. I just wouldn't want to. So, yeah, that's maybe something else. I, we think, that's a good, I think it's a good off-season one yes. to get into we've got three yep. races left in the season let's get through the world championship and you know add in those so that we're not going completely dark until preseason testing in february or whatever so yep. I, I i did kind of broach you know another talk with don he seemed interested and was more than willing to do it again so i'm sure we just got to find the appropriate time and lay something out and i'm sure don would be more than willing to to uh have, have another go as it yeah, were. But thank, thanks to Don, you know, that was really insightful stuff and great, you know, really grateful to him to lend some time to this subject and uh, yeah, be good to get him back on. Yep. All right. Well, I think that's it for the show. Like I said, the bulk of this is just an interview that we did with, with Don that you heard. Hopefully you all liked it. If you did, if you have any comments about it, feel free to write us, send an email to motopod at motopodcast.com. If you want to, you can talk to me directly you can find me on instagram and twitter at moto rgv rich you are at rich joe witt uh at rich at, at richard, richard sorry. sorry yeah yeah so j-o-w-i-t-t uh so yeah hit me up on twitter uh always pleased to respond to any comments that might come through and remember folks if you're into the iRacing virtual racing thing um jules and skyler are having an event it is at 7 p.m thursday nights uh pacific time in the east coast which i think is gmt what what am i i'm minus five five. five. so they're minus eight they're minus eight because there's three time zones before me and uh, the boys out on the left coast so if you want to get in there uh, you can look back at the previous show or you can find skyler at Skyler V28 on Instagram and Twitter, if I'm correct. Uh, you can drop Skyler a line that way. I'm sure he'll help you get involved if you want to be. And with that, we're going to sign off here, everybody. And just remember, ride safe.